Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, October 2nd, 2023, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Hero, and as you may or may not know, October is National Seafood Month, so we want to start that off with a bang. And this week's fish, you know, for this intro, I'm just going to steal from the best. It's the fish that changed the world. It's the Atlantic cod. And I'm especially honored to welcome Mark Kurlansky. He's an award-winning author of many books, including one of my favorites called Cod book that inspired me to buy a piece of salt cod in Toronto on my way to graduate school. And we're just so excited to learn from Mark today and raise awareness of this mighty important fish. It's super cool fish. It's shaped a large bit of history and culture along the East Coast of America. So very warm welcome to you, Mark. Thank you. Nice to be talking to you. Okay. So we like to start off like we're just meeting someone for the first time. In this case, it's a fish, the Atlantic cod. We'd love if you could help everyone listening imagine what it would be like to bring up a codfish from, say, George's Bank, that area out on the East Coast between Cape Cod and Nova Scotia, and what it would be like to actually really take a look at this fish and just appreciate kind of what it looks like. I just think of cod as a blue-collar fish. You know, as opposed to like a salmon is an aristocratic fish. <laughs> nice. Uh, it's, a, it's a basic down-to-earth fish. Okay. <laughs> it, it, it actually has a certain elegance to its look with its three dorsal fins. You know, it's got three fins on top and three fins on the bottom, which is somewhat unusual for fish and actually indicates that it's fairly far along in the evolutionary chain. There brown or gold spotted mm-hmm. with white bellies and just not a fancy fish, just a regular fish. <laughs> I guess I think, growing up in New England, cod was so commonplace that when my mother was cooking, when I asked her what was for dinner, if it was halibut or something, she'd say halibut, but if it was cod, she'd just say fish. And I think a lot of New Englanders do that. Cod is just fish. And it has a wide range of sizes. There used to be codfish that were as large as a man. And that size classification has been removed from the Boston market because you just don't run into them anymore that big. Three-foot cod is pretty good. They're getting smaller. You mentioned down to earth. Could you just describe a little bit more kind of how these fish are existing and where they are in the water column? Yeah. um, Cod is, is the classic example of what's called the bottom feeder. They swim in the lowest level of the ocean, not deep ocean. They're not deep water fish. They're at the bottom and they eat a lot of the stuff from the bottom. They're voracious eaters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the banks I refer to are shoals. You know, in, in New England, they have funny names for everything. So mm-hmm. <laughs> shoals are called banks. <laughs> and mm-hmm. they're these shallow spots that run almost like an underwater island chain from Labrador down to uh, Massachusetts. And these banks are particularly rich in fish, like cod, because they uh, they actually like feeding the shallow water on the bottom, but on the bottom of shallow water. It's a little more productive. Yeah, and so this was always the prime place for cod fishing. It's funny, you bring up them being ravenous and gluttonous. I have a little bit of an anecdote here. I've never been fortunate enough to catch a cod, but when I was interning over in England, one of my duties 
was taking care of the fish. They had turbot and place and they had cod. You know, I had to feed them. I had to take care of things. And I had to put the probe in to try to take the water temperature, (laughs) DO and everything like that. Even before it went in the water, they're jumping out of the water in these holding tanks to try and grab and swallow the probe. They got those big mouths on them and that barbel, that fleshy barbel kind of hanging off the lower jaw. But it was comical to see how much they wanted that probe. How big is their mouth? Like, what object could they fit in their mouth? A big one. It depends on, you know, you get a codfish the size of a man, they can put a large fish in. Okay. They're truly omnivores, you know, they'll eat just about anything. There's all sorts of legends. When I was writing my book, I really had to wade through these things. It's easy to get caught in all these cod stories, like the fisherman found his dentures. In a codfish pond. <laughs> Not true at all. Good news for commercial fishermen, bad news for sports fishermen. Once you hook them, they don't do anything. <laughs> you just have to haul them up. It's just dead weight. No, they, they don't fight it. So I take it from that lack of fighting, they probably have a pretty white meat to them. They don't got a lot of that red muscle, like you'd say in, say, a salmon. That, that's exactly right. It's very white flakes. That's the characteristic of the cod. And Delicious. If you cook a cod right after catching it, the flake just falls apart, mm-hmm. uh, which is wonderful, but not what people are used to. Those of us who were raised on it, I mean, it, it's just the essential fish. If it's not fresh, it's awful. <laughs> a good fresh cod, I don't know, there's a sense of purity to it. I mean, first of all, it's mm-hmm. pure white, and its flavor is actually very subtle much more subtle than salmon or most other fish, certainly more subtle than oily fish like mackerel or sardines. Just this very lean, fat-free, it's about the healthiest food you can eat. So it's a very special food yeah. fish to folks yeah. who've grown up with it and yeah. have it locally. Yeah. 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 So I, I've been involved in research and uh, testing this in Boston, in the public, with uh, cod that had been caught in different ways, different times. You know, they brought in fish caught that morning in Cape Cod, but then they had fish that was a couple days and different things. Nobody picked that day's cod. Oh. Because huh. it's just, it's not what people are used to. But yeah, it's, it's very different than a halibut. Halibut's like very firm. We've got halibut out here and we've got Pacific cod. I actually really like the cod and that flakiness. It's, yeah, it's quite tasty and tender. It's wonderful. People aren't used to it. They, you know, you get a really fresh cod and it just falls apart. People think, oh, there's something wrong with this. Yeah. So so I'm curious, too. What other parts of the cod are people eating? Because I've heard of people eating the tongue. I don't know if that's actually the tongue of the fish. I've been over to Norway. I've seen these drying racks with just the heads of the fish on them. So is the filet the only part of the fish that people are using or are people eating other parts of the cod? Oh, definitely eating other parts. You know, with just about all fish. The best parts are on the head. Mm-hmm. Uh, cod, there are the cheeks. Now, when cod are large, a cheek is like the size of a scallop. Mm-hmm. Uh, tender and extremely flavorful. The tongues, you're right. You guessed correctly. They're not really tongues. They're throats. Okay. Oh, okay. Them. I don't know why they call them tongues. <laughs> They're the throat part. <laughs> Interesting. And people who make salt cod also do salted throats and Salted tongues and salted cheeks. Okay. When I was a kid, my, my mother used to give us condom girl stave off. Stave she off was, rickets. Gotta get that vitamin I, I, D. I don't know. <laughs> stay healthy. Did yeah. it work? 
Well, we were healthy, but we sure didn't like cod liver oil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think vitamin A, the first vitamin that we ever discovered was came from cod liver oil, I believe. I think I think that's right. It's tremendously healthy stuff. It's the epitome of the idea that healthy food is horrible. You know? yep. <laughs> it's too bad. Yep. Do you think the Vikings moms made them eat cod liver oil? I don't know, but we got to go into the Vikings a little bit more because it's interesting how important cod liver oil was to their success as an empire. Because, you know, vitamin D is really important for bone development. When UV light hits cholesterol in our skin, it turns it into vitamin D, which helps with calcium uptake into our bones. And, you know, if you have really weak bones, you can't go around plundering. And so as you get into northern latitudes, a lot of people were developing rickets and other bone diseases because they weren't getting enough vitamin D. But cod liver oil is so high in vitamin D that the Vikings, when they would eat the cod livers or they'd refine the oil and drink the oil from that, it gave them the strength to go out there and kind of conquer the other place and set up settlements. In fact, one of the settlements they set up was actually on Greenland, and those people, they actually turned more to agriculture and farming and less to fishing, and so they stopped eating the cotton liver oil, and then you can see in the archaeological sites that they started getting the bone diseases again, and eventually those colonies failed. Getting the rickets? Yeah, they got rickets. Okay. They got rickets. That's why you got to eat the cod liver oil. Go cod. Eat your cod liver oil. So yeah, it's essential for them starting this whole dynasty of theirs. Empire, dynasty, whatever you want to call it. What's the most interesting recipe that you've come across? Does one kind of stand out in your mind out of all those thousands of books you have? From Henry Glass, who was an 18th century British cookbook author, who, as was done at the time, you know, women didn't sign their books, they'd say, by a lady. And her books were tremendously successful. She was not an incredibly original chef. She tended to do what was done. But she wrote about it so well. And one of the great things about Howdy Glass books is that it shows how great British cuisine was before the Industrial Revolution. It really was competitive with French cuisine. And I have a roasted cod recipe of hers that's got about eight stages to it. Oh, my gosh. If you're willing to put in the time just for a codfish, you know, it's a great dish. I mentioned your book title, History of the Fish That Changed the World, but like, how did this fish drive European settlement along the eastern coast and how, what important role did it play in bringing people to the coast? A lot of this has to do with the Catholic Church, which divided food into hot and cold. And food that was considered hot was not allowed on holy days because, as everybody knows, if you eat meat, you're just crazy for sex. And I come up, yeah, there you go. <laughs> if you, if you, supposedly, if you eat meat, you're just crazy for sex. So, no meat on holy days. And it used to okay. be that about half the days of the year were holy days. So, those were fish days. Mm. You may remember the last of it, which was fish on Friday. But it used to be about half the days in the year. So there was a tremendous market for fish. And there's no refrigeration. There's no freezing. So it's hard for inland people to have fish. And originally, the Basques uh, furnished this market with whale, right whale. Uh, although whale is actually red meat. The church didn't seem to know that. <laughs> yep. It lived in the water. It's, it's cold. 
That's right. No, I mean, that's absolutely right. You know that they said that you can't eat beaver, but you can eat the tail because it's in the water. Oh, my um, gosh. So then in true Basque enthusiasm, they wiped out every right whale in the Bay of the Stay and then and in European waters, and they started following. Now, if you keep following whale migration, you end up in Newfoundland. And when they got to Newfoundland, they found this incredible quantity of cod. So they started salting cod. And cod is really the ideal fish to salt. It has almost no fat. It's all white meat. And so cod became an extremely valuable fish mm-hmm. salted for Europe. The earliest station in Newfoundland Labrador is Basque. And of course, the Scandinavians came along, the Vikings came along, the French, the British, everybody started fishing cod in, in Canadian and what became New England waters, the most valuable fish in the world. So what, was the, what were the boats like in the past? And kind of what was the evolution of those vessels that folks were using? And similarly, what was kind of the evolution of the fishing equipment that was being used to catch these fish? Because it is cold water, deep water. I'm just kind of curious how folks went about it. For a long time, cod fishing was done with nets on small boat dories, which were released from large boats. You know, use the large boats to get to the fishing ground, and then you release mm-hmm. two-man dories. Really scary. It's dangerous. Yeah. And in Nova Scotia, the schooner was developed. Mm-hmm. Most people think of schooners as racing yachts, but they were actually developed as fishing boats. And because they were so fast, they could get the catch from the Grand Banks to Boston or to Halifax with incredible speed. Because mm-hmm. they had just a lot of sail. And they were also very dangerous. They could go yep. right over. If you ever see the movie Captain's Courageous, it really does a good job of showing the New England scooter cod fishery. And of course, the main character dies. Which a lot of people die. I mean, go a lot to, of people died. Yeah, I was reading about Gloucester in one of your books and just the amount oh, of fishing. Oh, yeah. You that go were... to that monument by the harbor there that lists all the people that have died. Hundreds going back. Oldest fishing town in America. You no, know, they add to that list every year. Now, when you talk about technology, it's gotten a lot better because they have this Gore-Tex stuff that when you're in the water, kind of protects you from the cold and keeps you floating. But also, you know, cell phone technology. So when your vessel went down, you were just lost at sea. Now when your vessel starts to go down, you can call the Coast Guard and give them your location. And that saves a lot of lives. It has always been and still is rated as the most dangerous work. It's ahead of coal mining, ahead of everything. Yeah. Uh, you got the weather, you got the waves. Unpredictable stuff. You know, and stuff like your leg gets caught in a rope, you get hauled overboard, or, you know, if you're fishing in a bottom dragger, they have these things called doors, heavy uh, slabs that cause the net to spread out when it hits the water. And those things go flying across the deck, you get hit by one, you're done. Yep. So there's all kinds of stuff. Although I have to tell you that when I was a kid and I was doing this stuff, I was never afraid. I thought that this was the greatest job in the world. I just mm-hmm. loved it. Maybe that has to do with being young, though. I don't know. <laughs> there's something about the ocean that draws people, though. I mean, it is, it's really neat to be out there. If you're a commercial fisherman and you're trying to catch the early tide and you go out in the dark and you 
you hit the open ocean at daybreak. That is the most gorgeous sight in the world. Mm. You're just so happy to be there, mm. even if it's a bit rough. Actually, sometimes, especially if it's a bit rough. Yeah. So when you were commercial fishing, were you doing the hand liner or were you guys using trawls by that point? Bottom dragging. Bottom dragging. Okay. Uh, well, that's a New England term that uh, in the rest of the world is called uh, trawlers. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, nets dragged off the back of, of boats and large nets, large vessels, and really kind of a wasteful way of fishing, which is kind of getting somewhat out of fashion because of that. Tremendous bycatch. When I was working on lobster boats, we used to go to the bottom draggers to get bait, and we used to buy skate, a dollar a bushel. Oh, wow. In those days, you know, nobody in America ate skate. They were catching because they just got caught up in the net. Actually, yep. about the same level as uh, cod. So if you drag it for cod, you get a lot of skates. Where are these fish found? Like, what's their historical range? Atlantic cod which I have to say, because I'm from New England, it's the best cod, is in the North Atlantic. It's not much south of New England, way up into Canada, into Iceland, Greenland, Scandinavia, British Isles. Don't go much below the Côte Atlantique in France. It's native to all these places. There's a debate between scientists and fishermen. Scientists will tell you that stocks are separate, about 500-mile range to a stock, and then you get into a slightly different cod. Mm. It seems to be true that as you travel the cod, it looks slightly different in different places. Yeah. When my book on cod came out, the people in Scandinavia refused to use the cover because they said, our cod doesn't look like that. Oh, okay. The truth is nobody's cod looks like that. I selected a drawing from the French naturalist, Buffon, Histoire Naturelle, and got it completely wrong. <laughs> it's not really what a cod looks like. But they do look somewhat different in different places. Now, got it. the problem with all this is that there are fishermen who swear that they have followed the same school of cod from Iceland to the Grand Banks of Canada. Scientists say no. Now, this is one of the problems in regulating fisheries, in any discussion of fisheries, is that there's one set of information from the fishermen, and there's another set of information from the scientists. Yep. And, and the scientists think that the fishermen don't really know because they didn't go to college. And the fishermen think that the scientists don't know because they didn't go to sea or not mm. for a long <laughs> Yeah, the fishermen are spending a lot of time with these fish, getting right. their hands on a lot of them. Right. And, yeah. and all I can say, working with both groups, is that they really both know a lot. I wouldn't dismiss anything from either of them. That local knowledge is important. Yeah. Talk about, you know, before the stock collapse up on the Grand Banks, and I don't think this is a spoiler alert for anyone, this is the most well-known fisheries mismanagement disaster in history, probably. But before that ha happened, you had a lot of the inshore cod fishermen were kind of ringing the alarm bell, right? Yes, uh, absolutely. In uh, Newfoundland, the uh, Inshore fishermen were saying there's something wrong going on because we we're getting less and less cod. Look, I mean, when I was a kid, a long time ago, mm -hmm. there was no limit. You know, there was no national limit to rights in the water. And mm -hmm. I worked on commercial fishing boats. And all anybody ever talked about the fishermen was overfishing. 
But when they talked about overfishing, they were talking about the Russians and the Japanese. Finally, at the pushing of the fishermen, they got these 12-mile limits. And the way the Americans saw this and the way the Canadians and a lot of countries saw this is now it was their opportunity for their local fishermen to take all the fish. They banned the foreigners. And so in Canada, they were really hitting the Grand Banks and the offshore fishery. They, they made this mistake that is very commonly made. They judged the stock by the catch. So they were catching huge amounts of fish. And so they, they were saying that it's just doing fine. This is almost always a mistake. You have to figure out what percentage of the total you're catching. Hard to do on a big ocean fish that has a, a lot of area that covers. Well, this is my argument with scientists. I don't think you can do it very accurately. I was giving a talk in uh, Reykjavik, Iceland, and I was saying this. And a lot of the scientists there took great ex- exception to my saying that. And a couple of years later, their cod fishery went into a crisis because it turned out they were catching a much higher percentage than they thought they were because they had miscalculated the total stock. And there's it's, a lot of modeling and yeah. estimating that goes into something like this where it's just, yeah, a fish that's in the ocean in particular, it's hard. We're supposed to think it's reliable because it's done with computers. <laughs> <laughs> What's happened since the decline and where are we at today with this fish and how it's doing? Oh, well, the two words that instantly came to my mind when you asked the question were funny and sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, it, it's sad that this once most common fish in the ocean yep. had become rare. But it's ironic that in doing so, it's become a deluxe fish. You go to the really great restaurants and they serve cod. They never would have served cod even 50 years ago. Salmon, halibut, or sole. You don't get cod. Yeah. Now you do. It's become a deluxe fish. Yeah. We, we've gone over like, okay, there was too much fishing. It was a classic case of overfishing and the stock plummeted and it has yet to really recover to where it needs to be. But what was that like for fishermen at the time when, you know, John Crosby was having to make these announcements and has have places like St. John's and stuff, how have they changed? Not so much St. John because that really is a city, a huge city, but someone was fishing towns just closed up and packed to Vancouver. Not everybody. Some people switch to crabbing. And there's a good market for this crab species that nobody really paid any attention to before. And there's some speculation that maybe this crab is more prevalent now because there aren't the codfish to eat them. It, it had a huge social impact on, on Newfoundland. It's kind of weird when you go there because you get cod souvenirs and cod is like this tourist thing as opposed to being a real commercial thing. It's like sort of a historic, sentimental thing about the past. But, I mean, yeah, let's talk about this more chart in Grand Banks because this is very interesting. You know, at the time I wrote my cod book, everybody was convinced that the big problem was overfishing, and overfishing was a problem. But, you know, they're not overfishing it now, and they're not even fishing it, and it's not coming back. And the Gloucester fleet has been cut way back and it's not coming back. The air's not coming back in the Gulf of Maine. What you find with these stories about cod coming back is what scientists call the shifting baseline. Mm. 
Say in 1900, there were 10,000 cod in this one stock. And then in 1970, it was down to the last 500. And a panic went out. Overfishing, the stock is being decimated. And then it went down to below 500 to mm-hmm. 400, 300, 200. And through good management programs, they've got it back up to 500. And they say the cod has come back. The cod has come back to the level that was first called decimated. Uh, it's not come back to that 1900 level. Why isn't it coming back the way it should, especially in a place with a moratorium? And the answer is climate change. The amount of carbon that's falling into the ocean is changing. I mean, there, there is also the, the factor of temperature, of warming. Cod is a cold water fish, so it's moving further north. Yeah. The Gulf of Maine, for some reason, is one of the fastest warming bodies in the Atlantic. Also, the chemical composition is changing. Capelin are not reproducing at the rate they used to, and zooplankton aren't reproducing the rate they used to. These are the things that cod and salmon and larger fish uh, count on for their diet, and it's not there anymore. Uh, It's like a system-wide change. The Atlantic Ocean is no longer able to feed its fish. This is the single most scary thing I have ever run into looking at oceans. Is there anything to be optimistic about in terms of any kind of progress being made with fisheries management or with technology of understanding kind of this climate change problem? Or Fishery management is coming along. In some cases, like Atlantic salmon or Canadian cod, management comes down to just stopping commercial fishing. But this isn't going to solve it. What can I say that's optimistic? I think that people are going to become very smart and start doing what they have to do to, to protect the planet. and We'll all be fine. Yep. It's, this is such a sad story. And I've kind of, when I was living in Maine, I was focused on Atlantic salmon. And you've seen kind of the decline of them and many of the native sea run fish and the cod. I guess, what can people do? I mean, we don't want these fish to just be a trinket in a tourist shop. Is there anything that the public can do or ways of thinking that can help one, I guess, prevent this from happening again and to improve the situation? Yeah, they could pay attention to the kind of cars they drive and the way they heat their houses and just stop burning carbon. That's what they have to do. Okay. It's a kind of recurring theme on this podcast. We're hearing a lot about climate change and how it's affecting fish all across the U.S., and Canada and beyond. What role does government and politics play in the management of these types of fisheries? It sounds like such a simple question, but it's so incredibly complicated. It it was this political thing that, as often happens with political things, scientists knew Mm -hmm. what was happening and they wouldn't listen to it. But I would have to say that Canada and most of Europe have a tremendous advantage over the U.S. that they actually have a fisheries minister. I mean, There's no person like that in in U.S. government. You had this progression of books where you came out with cod, then you came out with a Basque history of the world, and then you came out with salt. And so I'm just curious, we don't have a ton of like major authors and really historians come on the show. So what was your research process like? How did you go? Because I'm imagining you sitting there going down this road of cod and then you just, uh, well, okay, we, there's this whole Basque tangent then there's this whole salt tangent. Is that how it went down? Or how do you even get interested in <laughs> cod in the first place? usually work that way for me. But in this particular case, it did. Uh, 
I've always been interested in the Basque, been writing about them for years, covered Spain and Franco times. Mm -hmm. When I wrote about the Basques in my convo, there was a tremendous reaction to it. And my publisher said, gee, you ought to do a book on Basque. I'd been wanting to do a book on Basques like all my life, but I didn't think anybody would want it. (laughs) And salt, I learned from working on the cod book how important salt was because basically you couldn't have a fishery without salt. So you have this extremely valuable fishery where tons of money is being made, but you can't do it unless you have salt. And that's a lot of salt. Yes. yes. And, and, And that's what led me to start thinking about the whole history of salt. Katrina recently let me know that apparently we're big in Nigeria. The podcast, yeah. Yeah, but like Norway, like 95% of their stockfish is all being sent to Nigeria and Nigerian expatriates in other countries around the world. There's a whole history of the relationship of cod to the slave trade. Really? Okay. Which has to do with the fact that it was a low price item. The lowest grade of marine and salt cod was shipped to colonies in the Caribbean. I would think that there would be a rejection of food connected with this horrible history, but there's not. So in West Africa, they, they still eat cod. And in the Caribbean, they still eat cod, salt cod, mm-hmm. never fresh. What I was reading yeah. was like over in Nigeria, that part of the reason they had this civil war back in the 60s and part of the international aid that came was Norway sending down their not salt cod, but their stockfish, their dried cod. Right. And that that's just caught on. And now generations later, that's where most of the dried cod from Norway goes now. Yeah, I mean, I I think that uh, West Africa had this tradition of stockfish. Uh, The Biafran War, the war you're talking about in 1968, uh, was a horrible tragedy in which millions starved to death. So food aid became a very vital thing. Very rich history. So, I mean, you could dig in for days or years or decades, it seems like, into this history of this fish. Well, thank you. I've talked myself out. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, get out there and enjoy all the fish. And yeah, just appreciate the history of how fish have shaped your neck of the woods, like the Atlantic cod. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montequin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. Where are you from? I'm from Virginia. Really? Because you say cod, you know, it almost has a New England accent the way you say cod. Oh, good. I lived in Maine for maybe seven years. No, you say it like they say it in Maine, cod. Oh, cod. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I'm picking up the lingo as I move north. That's cool. Get out there and enjoy all the fish, especially the Atlantic cod.